in James 1, verse 1 through 4. And I'll just, I wanted, I think I'll do most of the reading and a few comments and then review it. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice verse 5. He immediately addresses a lack. I want you to grow in grace and so forth. So in verse 4, you lack nothing. But, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Then in chapter 3, beginning with verse <clears throat> 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also, the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the, can tame the tongue. It's a restless, evil, and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse men. And I, I do need to explain here, the word curse here doesn't mean cursing. It's just speak evil of, criticize. Speak cuttingly of. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the, in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes forth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water 
produce fresh. <coughs> Excuse me. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his deeds or by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Final section I want to read here. For one, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your desires, so forth, your way that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with, with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose, saying, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us? But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the, hum <clears throat> to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, that's a lot of reading. And I've read along many times, the book of James <clears throat> is likened by many Bible commentators to a string of pearls, meaning somewhat unrelated thoughts following another somewhat unrelated thought okay we're not saying at all here that somehow james and the holy spirit inspired this that james is meandering all over the place but it's not a logically systematic presentation again he's writing he said at the very start to jewish christians that have been scattered in every nation called the the dispersed um, and they are mostly in difficulty he speaks much in the book about trials tribulations testings trouble and they are facing that and another theme of the whole book is 
aiming at a certain dualness that we find often in our hearts. He's warning against it. And when we begin to look, even though it's not real systematic, <clears throat> we'll find several subjects that we can put together. James, again, is writing to believers. However, he doesn't ignore the fact that some of those believers under persecution and difficulty could have fallen back into sin. So he addresses what it means to be a sinner and to avoid temptation and so forth. Reminds us that if we know to do good and do not do it, to us it's sin. So he addresses those who may be under pressure or whatever, have returned and lost grace. Then he addresses a second group <clears throat> that he calls several times double-minded or double-souled. We could say he addresses there the problem of carnality, being yet carnal. Then, further, he addresses the issue of purity. And then he addresses separately a fourth issue, maturity. Now, in James, he quotes Psalm 24, or he has Psalm 24 in mind. When the fourth chapter, and we'll get to it in a minute, when he quotes King David, who wrote Psalm 24, who asked the, one of the most basic questions, most important questions, most fundamental questions that could ever be asked. David said, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell in his holy place? How do you get to heaven? In other words, how do I please God here, walk with God, fellowship with God? What's the condition of the heart that I must have to fellowship with God here? And then dwell is heaven. That's a permanent word. Not only who will go to the hill of the Lord, it really means the temple. Who's qualified to be... Um, admitted to the temple to worship who will dwell in his holy place in heaven permanently how do you get to heaven then he answers it very simply he that has clean hands and a pure heart now if you haven't gone to sleep yet he that has clean hands and a pure heart is a the, the qualifications, those are positive. But what's implied back of that? Back of requiring clean hands and a pure heart is the clear acknowledgement that in our natural state, without the redeeming grace of God and the atonement applied to our hearts, we don't have clean hands, nor do we have a pure heart. 
which tells us that we have a double problem that God provides a double cure to be applied. Now, I know you've heard me say that. You may think, oh, good land, we're hearing the same. Listen, let me hide behind God, okay? You think I'm repetitious? There isn't anybody more repetitious than God. Why? Because he knows that both we, we are spiritually dark and as a result of our fallenness, we're also intellectually dark. And so he has to tell us over and over and over and over again before it sinks in. And we see it in a short period of time with the disciples. Jesus told them over and over and over. And what did he do fairly frequently, especially towards the end of his ministry? Jesus would never, we could never say he was frustrated. I saw a really stupid ad. I don't know who made it, but it was any, anyways. Some Christian group thinking that they were going to represent Jesus well. It says something about Jesus had to control his outrage and so he can help us control ours. I, you know, I told this, the world. But anyway, Jesus never was on the brink of outrage. He was always in control, okay? But frequently, he sharply spoke to the disciples. Why do I have to keep telling you? Why don't you listen? Haven't I said this? Are you so dull of hearing? We see those frequently. And that tells us that as he walked among us, and then now as he speaks to us through his spirit, we don't get it. So we have to hear it a lot of times. An underlying assumption then that James has throughout this whole book is that we have, in the fallen sinful state, we have two problems. In this order, we have a heart that is polluted, corrupted, and inclined to self-sovereignty self-will and to actually enmity against God. He, Paul said in the book of Romans, the carnal mind is enmity against God, is not subject to the law of God and never will be. There is then a core of self-sovereignty and self-will. And I let me make this statement. We're born with that excessive love of self and defensiveness of self and grasping for what I 
want. So much so that God himself, the chief sovereign, he is my chief, he's the chief enemy of my self-sovereignty. There's where the deep fundamental clash is between the human heart and God. God demands complete and total and unreserved and no strings attached surrender and confidence and trust in Him. But our hearts are poisoned with self-sovereignty, self-will, self-promotion, and unbelief. And why do we have unbelief? Because I believe myself. Started in the garden. God said, leave that tree alone. The devil told Eve, this is an ice tree. Fruit's good. And so what did she do? Substituted her faith in God's judgment for her own judgment. That immediately brings in then unbelief. I don't believe God. I believe my own calculations, my judgment, my discernment, my way. So I have a heart that is bent toward resisting God and refusing his claim on me. What does that produce? If I have a heart that is bent on my way, my will, my sovereignty, don't tell me what to do. What will I do? Outwardly keep his commandments? <laughs> of course not. So I introduce a second problem. Outward, open rebellion. This in here always produces acts of disobedience and rebellion. A spirit of rebellion produces outward deeds that are rebelling. So I break God's law. That's outward, typified in this scripture and in David's, by my hands. And what's, he, what's the problem with my hands? Those are but a symptom. The deeds I commit are but a symptom of a heart that is contrary to God. So that's why David said, we need both to have clean hands, but also back of our hands, a pure heart. Now, that is James's underlying theology of the human life, the human condition. And so the whole letter is based on that. So he describes then, it's interesting, I think, in the first chapter where he says, he's talking about maturity in 1 through 4 where We've gone through difficulties and testing and trials. And that if that's a little heading, if your Bible has headings for paragraphs, that's the first heading, testing of your faith. Consider it all joy when you fall into all kinds of temptations, trials, difficulties, which sounds strange. 
Well, I get ahead of myself. Consider it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is a description of maturity. Okay? Then he shifts gears. But he's telling us there is a certain route to maturity. Maturity takes time, obedience, trouble, testings of our faith, holding on when it's dark, holding on through difficulties, keeping hung on to that God is good. He knows what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. And of the three faculties God's given us as part of his image, will, reason, feelings, two of them we can feel are shot. I can't feel God, and my head, I can't figure out what's going on. But I still have a will. And I can say, I'll trust God. Job said, I can't find God, don't know what he's up to. He, it seems like he's even become my enemy. But he said, even if he kills me, I'll trust him. So the devil has access, without my permission, to two of the faculties God gave us, emotions and reason. He can mess my head up. But he doesn't have access without my permission to my will. I can then say, I'll trust God, period. That's what James is describing in 1 through 4. You lack nothing. You're a mature Christian. But then he says, but if you do have a lack in wisdom, he doesn't say that time, testing, experience will get rid of that lack or supply it. He said, let him ask, pray. And then he seems unusually hard. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, because he said if he wavers, like a wind blown by the wind, or the wave blown by the wind, don't let that man think he'll receive anything from the Lord, because he's double-minded. What? What's he shift to here? Well, we have to remember one thing. So many people interpret this prayer, this, if you lack wisdom, meaning, okay, you don't have very good judgment, you don't have very good common sense, you seem to make errors, mistakes at times, your discernment sometimes is lacking, you may be gullible, you may be easily fooled, you may be kind of... Um, you know, random all over the map. That isn't remotely what he's talking about. That's not the kind of wisdom he's talking about. It's not wisdom that I make good decisions. The wisdom he's talking about here is the kind that all through the Old Testament and the New, we have these great statements Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, does the fear of the Lord mean 
you can't tell the difference between getting taken to the cleaners on a car that you're gonna you're looking to buy. No, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about anything but a spiritual. What does the fear of the Lord mean? Fear is deep, reverent, submissive, obedient, reverent attitude towards God. Thy will be done. You are the master, the sovereign of the universe and of my heart. And I, my job, your job isn't to make me happy. My job is to serve you. And even like the little chorus we sang, that God would be pleased with what we do and say. David prayed that in 19, Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto thee. That's what we're talking about here. That's why. Because again, if the wisdom we lack is the wisdom to make a good financial decision um, or a thousand of the other decisions. Should I take that job? Should I do this? He's not talking about that. Then why, if he was, what kind of harshness is God using here where he says, you better pray, you better pray that and ask for that. No wavering or you'll get nothing. He isn't talking then about human wisdom. He's talking about spiritual wisdom. Discernment of things of God on the same wavelength with God. That, he says, if you discover you're lacking, you don't get that from experience. You'll never get it from intelligence. You'll never get it from reading and learning. You have to petition God to give you that. If you lack it and you've got to ask with total faith, When we as believers discover that we still have a core of self-will and self-sovereignty in our heart, the only way we get the remedy for that, which is purification of our hearts, is by total faith. It's pushing aside every doubt. It's renouncing every doubt. It is renouncing our supposed rights to ourselves. It is utter, complete, I guess I would even say helpless, defenseless surrender to God. You have me, Lord, lock, stock, and barrel. Do with me what you will. And you can't get to that point without faith. So that's why he says, if you waver, you won't get it. It's got to be utter faith, which follows on the heels of utter surrender. Renouncing of my judgment, my will, my plans, my ambitions, my agenda. Yeah, I got it together. I know it. No. It's Lord hangs my helpless soul on thee. We have to come to that point. That's what he's talking about here. If you lack wisdom, ask of God not wavering. You don't want to be double-minded. That's the very problem that's got to be cured. Now, 
let me prove to you that I know, uh, I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about wisdom. If you lack wisdom, go over to 3, chapter 3, 17. And what does he say there? talks about the wisdom that's from below in the verses preceding that. If you have, he said, if you have, in 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. If God shows you that that's what's left in your heart, even though you have been converted and your hands are clean, but your heart's not pure, don't deny it. Don't pretend that it isn't an issue. So, what's the wisdom then from above? Bitter jealousy and envy and selfish ambition, that's the core of carnality. That's the core of the sinful nature. And he is saying here, that's from below. That's demonic. That's devilish. Then he contrasts. But the wisdom from above is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Quite a string here of characteristics. But the key is, we must understand this verse and even the, the basic, the original language here is very clear. This is not saying the wisdom that's from above, that if you lack, ask of God. The wisdom that is from above is not first pure, second peaceable, third reasonable. That's not the language it is foundationally, essentially, and thoroughly pure. Then it will produce patience. King James, older versions, easy to be entreated. Newer versions say, therefore, reasonable, willing to yield. Or, here's another good translation, not exactingly just, or someone satisfied with less than they are due. This is not, this is a generous, magnanimous, fault overlooking as much as we can attitude. That, remember, what is he addressing? He said, how come you have quarrels among you? It's because everybody's exactingly just and wants my way. And I want every jot and tittle of my way. You understand? So what cures that? An attitude that says, look, we'll put up with it. There's, there's, a, there's a limit. We all know that. The Bible's full of that too, how to deal with situations that have to be dealt with. But we don't have to be exactingly just. Nor do we require. We're not to require 
exacting apologies from people. That goes along with this too. There are people, until they apologize to me, I'll never believe that they're right with God. Not, can't do that. And here's why. I don't have any idea. None of us do. Every one of us here today that are redeemed, we don't have any idea the grief and the brokenheartedness we brought to God. He sent His Son because of me and because of you. It cost Him the death of His Son. When we then come to Him in repentance, the truth of the matter is, as far as we're fully, as far as we're aware, we tell God we're sorry for the grief we brought to Him, but we don't have a real comprehension of how deep that grief was that we inflicted on Him. But what does He do? Sees the intent of my heart, knows that I don't have any idea how deeply I wounded Him. He says, but I, as far as you can see... <laughs> As far as you comprehend, I, got, I know what you mean. I'll forgive you. He said, you have that same attitude toward each other as much as possible. That's the attitude of a heart that will fix marriages, have peace in church. It's what God intends for us to have. And he says, if we lack it, Ask of God. He'll give it to us. Now I've got to quit here with the last scripture. 4, chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now look, he's still back at the same thing. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's addressing two different categories of spiritual condition with two different needs and two different sets of instructions. If you're a sinner, repent of your sinning which is epitomized by the phrase, your hands, your outward life. If you're not guilty of that, you know you've been born of God, and the, the habitual bondage and slavery to sinful deeds has been broken, that doesn't apply to you. Your hands are clean. But is your heart pure? If your heart's not pure, he says... Purify your heart. Now, is he saying, do this to yourself? No. He's saying, avail yourself of the grace of God. <clears throat> and that's why he uses the word, you, you cleanse your hand. Meaning, make yourself grasp what's available for God to cleanse your heart. Meet the conditions. If your heart's not pure, meet the conditions for that. Because in the end... That's God's goal. Clean hands, a pure heart. Now we, we conclude here with 
the verses that, that follow <clears throat> here in 4. Humble yourself, or 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you or lift you up. That's how I have to seek clean hands and a pure heart. Sorrow for what I see. Let God show me my heart. Bring me to the place where I mourn. I mourn. My heart is heavy. I need badly enough God that I'll pay whatever price I have to in admission and acknowledgement and faith. The question we need to then ask ourselves, where, just where are we? And I really can't be trusted, none of us can be trusted to x-ray our own hearts. That's why David prayed at the end of Psalm 139. Search my heart, O God. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. I want you to do that today. I want you to take this home with you. I want you through the week to let God just talk to your heart. He's He's our best friend. He never grabs us by the collar, rubs our face, humiliates us. He doesn't do that. He's the best physician there is. And when he sees a test result he doesn't like, he's going to tell you. Why? Because he loves you. That's why. So let's be an open book before him. And then whatever he may show us, Move on it. Act on it. Obey Him. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, this morning, for each one of us who just listened to your word and your message, and I know as I prayed earlier, Lord, that your provision would be ours that you would meet us where we need met and help us where we need help and speak to us where we need spoken to. And I believe by faith that your Holy Spirit has done that this morning. Now help us to be obedient as our pastor just encouraged us. Lord, I guess the question that you've laid on my heart is this. What is it? What is it that is keeping you from having a deeper relationship with me? And Lord, whatever that is that you've laid on our hearts, you want to do a work in us to take that away and deal with it so that we can be closer to you and be stronger in you and have more faith and not be selfish in our spiritual walk. So this morning, as our pastor just encouraged us, Lord, help us not just today in this moment, but throughout this week as you speak to our hearts. Help us to allow you to do the work that you see needs to be done. Help us to come into agreement with how you see us and what needs to be taken care of. And then we will hear one day as we land safely on heaven's shores, well done, good and faithful servant, because we've been obedient to you in whatever it is you lay before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys, you are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.